This is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I'm your host, Davy Crockett. Thanks. Thanks for coming. This is episode 127, the second part of the story about Frank Hart, who was the Jackie Robinson of the 19th century ultra running. He broke the color barrier and fought racism with his feet and sometimes his fists. This multi-part series is a slimmed-down version of Hart's amazing life. To read the entire history, get my new book on Amazon, Frank Hart, The First Black Ultra-Running Star. Search for Frank Hart, H-A-R-T, on Amazon. And now a word from our sponsors. Guess what? I released another book. What? Grand Canyon Rim-to-Rim History. It is a must-read for anyone who has run rim-to-rim or plans to in the Grand Canyon. It presents a 130-year history of the rim-to-rim hikers, runners, trails, bridges, Phantom Ranch, and other things you will see on your run, packed with more than 400 photos. Get Grand Canyon Rim-to-Rim History on Amazon. Will do. Frank Hart, at age 22, broke through racial barriers with his fourth-place finish in the fifth Astley Belt race in Madison Square Garden, held in September 1879. Despite being black, Hart became a local hero in his hometown of Boston, Massachusetts. He had proven himself worthy of praise, competing on the grandest sporting stage in the world. The ultra-running pedestrian promoters, backers, and bookmakers had allowed for diversity in this most popular spectator sport in America at that time. But was the American public ready to accept a black champion just 15 years since the end of the bloody Civil War, with racial bigotry still prevalent in nearly all aspects of society? Hart, an immigrant from Haiti, had not grown up in slavery and had the determination to reach the highest level of the sport in 1880, if he would be allowed. After the good training he received from Daniel O'Leary, and with his recent success, fame, and fortune, he was ready to go out on his own. He hired his own trainer or handler, John Oliver, age 19, who became better known as Happy Jack Smith. Within months, Smith became recognized as the best pedestrian trainer in America. He developed a reputation for being able to keep his runners in the competition to the bitter end. Hart also needed a manager or agent. He again turned to a very young, unproven but dynamic talent. He hired 19-year-old Jacob Gottlieb, a theater man with West Coast ties who took interest in pedestrianism. With these two young men to look after him, In December 1879, Hart went to compete at the next big six-day tournament, the Great International Six-Day Race, or Rose Belt, held in Madison Square Garden in New York City. This was perhaps the largest six-day race in history, with 65 starters. About 200 scorers were employed. Scores were displayed on dials for each runner. Each runner had a big number both on their chest and on their back. Hart was not the only black runner in the field. There were three others, Edward Williams of New York City, Paul Hewitt of Boston, 
and William Pegrun of Boston. In this race, they would often run together with Hart on laps. After the first day, Hart was in second place with 117 miles. Hart took over first place once the leader withdrew. By the evening of the second day, only 48 of the 65 starters remained in the race. The largest crowd came out on Christmas Day, day four, with 7,000 people. Hart looked the most wearied, and all his friends began to lose hope. He fell to third place, but was only two miles behind the leader. At 9 p.m., Hart, in his familiar striped suit, finally retook first place, which caused the crowd to cheer. Hart's new trainer, Happy Jack Smith, was pleased with his runner and said that he was in, quote, tip-top condition, determined to do or die. His goal was to exceed 530 miles that Charles Rowell reached winning the fifth athlete belt a few months earlier. But his friends hoped that he would reach 551 miles, which would break Edward Payson Weston's world record of 550 miles. Only 19 runners remained in the race. The crowd at midnight had dwindled to a few hundred, and a good proportion of these were stretched out on the upper benches for an all-night sleep. Hart maintained a lead of six miles on day five, which was close enough to push him hard. On the last day, running through air foul with tobacco smoke, Hart became very excited when he reached his goal of 531 miles. Hart was swinging around with an American flag amid tremendous cheering, which was aroused by a dog trot into which he struck with the ease and lightness of a fresh man on the track. Fueling on champagne diluted in seltzer, he cruised to victory, wearing a white flannel suit with a blue jockey cap on his head. He reached 540.1 miles, running the last lap with the rose belt around his waist, carrying an American flag. He had proved to his doubters that his good showing at the Astley Belt race was not a fluke. He was now a champion. Cheers rang out that shook the building. His mark was the third best six-day mark in the world at that point, and the best accomplished on American soil. Eight runners exceeded 500 miles in the race. Three of the black runners finished in the top seven. Hart had established himself as a world elite ultra-runner and went away with at least $3,000 of winnings and the Rose Belt valued at $400. Sadly, one of the contestants, Clarence G. Howard, who had withdrawn from the race on day one after 75 miles feeling sick, died four days later at his home on Long Island. Everything possible was done to save him, but without avail, and he died from utter exhaustion. He was more like a schoolteacher or a man of sedentary employment than a professional walker. Reaction about Hart's victory in the press was mixed. The New York Daily Herald wrote, The promise of the young Negro heart to become one of the leading pedestrians of the world was handsomely fulfilled on Saturday night when the boy retired from the track with 540 miles to his credit. The reporter speculated in the racist attitude of the day 
that Hart was successful because he was, quote, docile and obedient to his trainers late in the race and gained his perfect walking method from his master, O'Leary. But the article then admitted, As for Hart himself, his manners and achievements have made him as popular as any pedestrian in America, and he may confidently challenge any other pedestrian in the world. Hart returned to Boston by train and was greeted by a large crowd at Old Colony Depot. A few days later, a nice banquet was held in his honor, with many dignitaries giving flattering speeches. Much of the nation was astonished that a black man could rise to be the greatest American athlete in the most popular spectator sport of that era. The Boston Globe wrote, We have heard it said that the Negro was incapable of noble endeavor. Hart has proven the lie to this assertion, for he has not only vanquished 49 white men, but beaten the remaining 16 who pluckily continued on the track. Hart's success must be a natural spur of grand and nobler achievements. His great zeal, devotion, and honesty of purpose displayed on every occasion he has earned for himself the exalted position of champion of America, if not the world. In addressing the racism of the day, the Brooklyn Daily Eagle wrote, Mr. Hart has shown conclusively that there is nothing in a black skin or woolly hair that is incompatible with fortitude. The idea that our colored brother is an inferior will never sustain so severe a shock at the hands of the logician as it will when a colored man proves his physical equality as Hart has done. In the contest which ended last night, there were Americans, Englishmen, Irishmen, and Germans, and the colored boy showed that he was above their average. Hart was now very rich, with winnings of at least $5,000 valued at $145,000 today. But he believed that his financial backers had cheated him of some of his past earnings. He next participated in some exhibition runs and announced his intentions to run in the second O'Leary belt to be held in April 1880 in Madison Square Garden, which would turn out to be the greatest race of his life. Daniel O'Leary established the O'Leary Belt six-day race series in October 1879 as an American championship alternative to the Astley Belt race. The British had too much control over the Astley Belt series, and this American version would prepare American runners to compete on a world stage without traveling to England. The O'Leary Belt race series could only be competed in America. At 11.30 p.m. on April 4, 1880, Hart, aged 23, entered Madison Square Garden and walked around the track to his tent while given loud applause from 6,000 people. He was confident that he would win and was a 3-to-1 favorite among the betters. He had boasted to the press, I'll break these white fellows' hearts. I will. You hear me. At midnight, all the 18 starters lined up and pedestrian promoter and referee William Curtis shouted the word, Go! The competitors went off on a trot or dead run, with Edward Williams, another black runner, finishing the first mile in 6 minutes and 20 seconds with the lead. After an hour, the third black runner, William Pegram, was in the lead. 
he had been called, quote, the dark horse of the race. By morning, nearly 8,000 spectators filled the garden. At the rail, the beer-drinking and cigarette-smoking men puffed their smoke into the faces of the plodding pedestrians as they passed by. Pegram and Williams, the dark team of Hart's nationality, moved steadily and entirely in procession, at times working up and making a tandem with Black Dan as leader. Hart reached 100 miles in 16 hours, 58 minutes, and covered an amazing 131 miles on the first day. He held first place by two miles. Hart's fine form, together with his stylish elastic walk and graceful carriage, won much favor among the fair sex. He finished day two with 225 miles. Some observers closely watched Hart to find possible flaws, but what they found was impressive. Hart is of a bright and happy temperament. He was always ready to look at whatever was going on, to chat with a contestant, and glance in the direction from which encouraging shouts came, to give a weary plotter a kind word and helping arm, and to laugh at the fun which was going on. On day three, Hart reached 300 miles in an American record of 66 hours, 28 minutes, and finished off the day with 315 miles. Day four presented a furious battle between Hart and John Dobler of Chicago. The sharpest struggle of the race took place. Dobler began to quicken and Hart followed. Lap after lap was covered and still the young Chicagoan hurried the work, which eventually began to surprise Hart, who was immediately behind him. By mid-morning, the battle seriously exhausted Hart. Later in the day, Dobler hit the wall and broke down, allowing Hart to build a double-digit lead in miles by late evening. The smoke in the garden became terribly thick, and when the walkers finally complained, the windows were opened. It was soon discovered that much of the smoke was coming up through cracks in the floor of the scorer's box. A smoldering fire was found below that, which had been lit by a watchman trying to warm himself. It was put out, and they were lucky it didn't spread throughout the building. Hart finished day four with 405 miles ahead of the world record pace with a 14-mile lead. The press was amazed to see the two black runners, Hart and Pegram, leading the race. When Hart started to have fainting spells, his trainers gave him stimulants and a, quote, magic sponge, probably doused in ammonia, to revive him. On day five, Hart concentrated on keeping his lead over his friend Pegram. They raced hard against each other for about seven miles during the morning without a break. Although Hart was literally 13 miles ahead in the journey, he dogged Pegram's footsteps relentlessly. Pegram lost his temper at times, occasionally throwing his broad feet backward like scoops and showering Hart's legs with sawdust. Hart took this good-naturedly, retaliating by giving Pegram a brisk brush once in a while. Runners could reverse direction for the next lap at the scorer's table whenever they wanted. Hart would at times reverse direction without Pegram immediately noticing, causing him confusion and to the delight of the laughing crowd. 
At the end of day five, Hart reached 492 miles with a 19-mile lead over Pegram. As Hart started the final day, he struggled. Happy Jack Smith said, At first, Frank was terribly sick and tired. He didn't want to work. He was awful leg-weary. But he said he had to get that belt, and he went on. Hart reached 500 miles in the morning, two miles ahead of the world record pace. He reached 550 miles with about six hours to go. This was the signal for a perfect storm of applause from the men and boys, while the women waved handkerchiefs and shook their fans in a perfect frenzy of excitement. As he neared his tent in the next lap, the colored favorite grabbed an American flag from the hands of one of his trainers and ran at a lively gait around the track for the next lap, waving the flag in the air amid yells and cheers of the crowd. The garden was packed to capacity, including many black spectators who had come to witness Hart's victory. Three miles later, Hart broke the world record of 553 miles set by Blore Brown of England two months earlier in London. This earned Hart a $1,000 bonus. The yells and cheers which greeted him shook the building with their volume. Reaching his tent in the midst of the applause, he grabbed a broom to which a flag was attached and ran the next lap as nimbly as a deer. He didn't stop wanting to pile up more miles. When he reached 560 miles, all eight runners still on the track joined him for a lap. Hart ran with a silk jockey cap of many colors that a spectator gave to him. For his final lap, he wore the O'Leary belt and waved the stars and stripes as the band played Yankee Doodle. He finally retired after 141 hours and 23 minutes, with 565 miles beating the previous world record by 12 miles. Pegram reached 543 miles for the third best six-day score ever accomplished by an American up to that point and the second best performance on American soil. Hart was driven by horse carriage to a Turkish bath and after a nap of a couple hours was taken to his agent's home nearby. Hart won an estimated $21,567 including a wager on himself, valued at $627,000 today. His winnings so far during his running career exceeded $860,000 in today's value. The next day, when visited by a reporter, he was quietly smoking, sitting near a table displaying his belts, the Rose Belt and the O'Leary Belt. Hart looked the very picture of contentment, with a quiet, easy dignity that well befits all heroes. There was a stunning racist reaction across the country that a black runner was the best ultra runner in the world. In Louisiana, Hart, the Negro tramp, is the colored lion of the hour in New York. His legs have shown remarkable sustaining powers, and ladies give him bouquets. In Indiana, the colored man's foot is not a thing to be despised. The Negro walker carried off $16,000. Many a white man with a head full of brains never earned that money in all his life. 
in St. Louis, Missouri. It is eminently proper that in a contest of this character that the honor should fall to a race celebrated by its physical accomplishments as opposed to intellectual. In Kansas, Legs pay better than brains every time. We, however, can't advise young men to cultivate a growth of legs rather than brains. In England, it was written, The Negro has now reappeared to public view in a new light. He has proven himself the champion long-distance pedestrian of the world. This being an honor recently warmly contended for by many white men, it necessarily follows that to secure it must be a mark of unquestioned merit in the colored men. In Cleveland, Ohio, It has always been claimed that the Negro race was inferior to whites in every respect, but it appears that result of this match that the Negro race may lay claim to physical superiority to the white in endurance of prolonged muscular exertion as in this walking match, and in the power of resisting tropical heat. The black race is evidently developing rapidly. Hart went with O'Leary on a victory tour to various cities, putting on walking exhibitions. O'Leary praised Hart's effect on others. The colored boys are all crazy to walk, and darky pedestrians will probably soon be almost as numerous as blackberries in summer. O'Leary also expressed some racist observations that were common of the era, saying, One great difficulty has been encountered in handling this class of men, and that is their desire for sleep. It gives the white man a decided advantage. The moment that night comes on, a terrible drowsiness is experienced that they cannot shake off without making a very great effort. With all his great score, Hart had to have his sleep no matter how close the race might be. Hart's prize belt went on display in a storefront in Boston. He next wanted to be recognized as the champion of the entire world. He turned his attention to putting together a contest against England's greatest champion, Charles Rowell, but the Brits were insistent that any such match be competed in England. Then tragedy struck. On about July 20th, 1880, Hart became critically ill. Early on, a reporter visited him at his home in Boston. Hart said, I feel much better today, but my physician says I must keep quiet. Ice seems to be the only comfort that I have. My head worries me considerably, but I am satisfied that I will come out all right. It, however, annoys me, as I fear that it may hurt my chances for holding on to the O'Leary belt. But you can tell my friends that I hope to get out of my present sickness and show them that Boston's representative will not be behindhand at the next race. After a few days, things got worse. He spent a very restless night, and his family and friends are considerably exercised as the result. His trainer, Happy Jack Smith, arrived from New York and will watch him with his usual care. His presence seems to have given much confidence to the sick champion. His doctors diagnosed, quote, congestion of the brain, thought to have been caused by sunstroke. The press also speculated that he had typhoid fever. Adding to Hart's tragedy, 
His two-year-old daughter, Sarah, died of meningitis while Hart was still very low. She had been sick for two weeks. Hart likely had the same disease. News of his illness spread throughout the country. Some editors were cruel. In Buffalo, New York, Frank Hart, the peacock of pedestrians, the dandy of darkies, is sick with congestion of the brain. It is odd that the disease did not attack him in his legs. In Ottawa, Canada, Frank Hart, the colored pedestrian, is dying in Boston. It is noticeable that men who force nature in any way die young. Smith tried to nurse Hart back to health, giving him alcoholic baths. After a few days, Smith reported Hart's condition. I am glad to say Frank is much better tonight. He is more rational, but I do not yet consider him out of danger. I have followed the doctor's orders to the letter and allowed no one to see him. I will spare no expense to see Frank on his feet again. We'll take the starch out of those English blowers. After about two weeks, Hart told the reporter, I'm all right now, but I've had a siege of it. Smith added, Hart's appetite is excellent, he sleeps well, and will soon be able to sit up. The crisis is past. He is all right now, and you can bet your bottom dollar that he will win another race. Hart had lost 18 pounds during his health scare. After three weeks of caring for him, Smith returned to New York City. Hart let Smith train fellow black pedestrian Pegram, who was training for the sixth athlete belt race. After a month of being struck by the illness, Hart was finally getting outside, taking carriage rides. He said, My appetite is poor, owing to the fact that my stomach is very sensitive. I am able to get around my house pretty well, but I am very cautious. I do not expect to be able to go into training until late this fall. I am going to act with caution and follow my physician's instructions, for I expect to have a few more trophies. It would be impossible for him to try to bring the Astley belt back to America, and the next O'Leary belt challenge was postponed for several months to let him recover. In October 1880, Hart planned to sail with O'Leary and others to England to support the American runners competing for the sixth Astley belt race. However, while in New York City, he lost another child. On October 14, 1880, his baby son, William Walter Hart, eight months old, died of cholera back in Boston. Hart decided to return to Boston and start training to defend the O'Leary belt. On November 5, 1880, Charles Rowell of England won the Astley belt again and broke Hart's world record by one mile, reaching 566 miles. Losing the world record especially to his British rival was disappointing for Hart. Raoul won the belt by nearly 100 miles, but went on to snag Hart's world record, quote, for the fun of it. Hart publicly challenged Raoul to a six-day race in New York, saying, I will put up dollar for dollar of his and will beat him and let him see that there is no fun in beating me. The next O'Leary belt was again postponed because of construction on Madison Square Garden, giving Hart another month to get back into shape. The sporting world was very skeptical if Hart would ever return to his previous dominance. The impression in New York is that Hart is fearful of again entering in a long-distance match. 
or that having accumulated so much money, he is not willing to again pound the sawdust. Word spread. It looks as if the young man from Haiti was breaking up. Was Hart washed up as an ultra-runner? The general opinion among the pedestrian fancy is that Hart, the colored boy, has broken down. Hart should enter the O'Leary Belt race if only to prove to his friends that he is game as ever and is not afraid to meet a number of good men. Stay tuned to see if Hart recovered and started to win again. With that, this is Davy Crockett, and this is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I hope you run fast and far, enjoy life, get outdoors, and most of all, stay safe and don't take unnecessary chances.